do pick up your Bible and uh, turn there to Matthew chapter 26. The passage we're going to look at is verses 36 to 46. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. For memory, page 999. Let's seek God's help. Let's pray. Father, open your word to our understanding in order that we may follow in faithfulness and in obedience, seeking your honor, seeking your glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. It's good to be reminded that the goal of Jesus' life and of his ministry was always the cross. Jesus lived every moment of every day, always conscious of the suffering and the death that awaited him. He traveled to Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, knowing that he went there to be crucified. And as they were nearing Jerusalem, Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A few days after his entry into Jerusalem, Jesus said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. During that week, when a woman came to Jesus and anointed him with perfume, Jesus received her anointing with these words. He said, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Then came the last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples, the Passover meal. It's the night of Jesus' betrayal. The whole day is the most thoroughly documented day of Jesus' life. The Gospel of John devotes five chapters, chapters 13 to 17, giving a detailed account of what happened that evening in the upper room. And the event that we're looking at this morning occurred at the end of that day. After Jesus spent that final evening with his disciples, John 18 verse 1 says, He went out with his disciples across the Kedron Valley where there was a garden. And that's in Matthew 26 verse 36 where we're told the name of the garden. It was called Gethsemane, which literally means oil press. A very secluded place, directly opposite the eastern gate of the temple, where there was a, a grove of olive trees. I had the privilege of visiting that very spot, and there are still ancient olive trees there to this day, some of them 2,000 years old. But when the Easter story is told, this is an important part of that story. And we can never come to Gethsemane without feeling the wonder of what it depicts of our Lord. And yet we're always driven back by the mystery of his groans, the mystery of his sweat, which was mingled with blood. And of all the words recorded of our Lord spoken on the cross, only one of the seven so-called sayings of our Lord give us any direct insight into the state of our Lord's mind and soul as he was actually on the cross being made sin for his people. It was encapsulated in that cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's Gethsemane that helps us to enter in more fully to explain what was meant 
when the Savior uttered those words as he hung on the cross. The very word forsaken conjures up in our minds some tragic scenes. We can think of a man forsaken by his friends or a wife forsaken by her husband or a child forsaken by its parents. But someone forsaken by their creator, someone forsaken by God, this is the most frightening scene of them all. And for the Christian, the thought of our God hiding his face from us, even for a moment, is unbearable. And if this is true of forgiven sinners, how infinitely more so of the beloved Son of the Father. Now, some of the language used in this passage is disturbing. Verse 37, He, our Lord, began to be sorrowful and troubled. Look at verse 38. Our Lord said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he felt a crushing weight of sorrow as he thought about what lay ahead. In Gethsemane, Jesus entered the gloom of those three hours of darkness on the cross. And it wasn't a thought of betrayal by Judas, nor the desertion by his disciples in the hour of crisis, nor was it the expectation of the mocking and the beatings or the nails that overwhelmed his soul. No, nothing compared with what he had to endure as the sin bearer. And again, we read that he did not, in a very dignified way, gradually kneel in the garden and take a posture of humility. Verse 39 tells us that he went forward a little and he fell upon his face. And the parallel passage in Luke's gospel tells us that the sweat that fell from his brow was as great drops of blood. In Gethsemane, only ours from death, our Lord was greatly troubled. And we add to this very graphic language, to this very strong expression of his own grief, of his own inner trauma, the greatest perhaps of all the mysteries of Gethsemane, the mystery of our Lord's deep aversion, his strong dislike in the prayer that, that if at all possible, he might avoid the ordeal of the cross. But as obvious that all of the concerns and all of the strong and vivid expressions concerning his sorrow and his agony and his inner pain, all of these things converge upon this one reality. And that reality is the cup. It's the cup that takes the center stage in the events recorded for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground, and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42. Again, for the second time he went away, and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he prayed a similar prayer for a third time in verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So although Gethsemane is shrouded with mystery, 
And although there is much which only the Lord himself will be able to explain to us when we see him face to face, simply this morning I want to ask three questions, focusing on the object, on the centerpiece of this incident in the garden, namely this cup. And the first question is this, what was this cup? What was it? This cup before which our Lord drew back, the thought of which in drinking it made him fall to the ground. This cup that made him sweat great drops of blood. This cup, the prospect of which caused him deadly sorrow and made him pray three times, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So we need to know what was this cup? What did this cup contain? Here's the answer. It was the cup full of nothing less than the wrath of God against the sins of those for whom Christ stood as substitute. It was the cup full of nothing less than the wrath of God against the sins of those for whom Christ stood as substitute. It was the cup that would involve the withdrawal of all the comfortable influences of the sense of the Father's fellowship, of the sense of the Father's presence, and in its place, the consciousness of the anger of God unleashed upon the soul of the Son of God. What must it have meant to be forsaken by his Father? Surely the hiding of God the Father's face from the Son of God was the most bitter ingredient of that cup which the Father had given the Redeemer to drink. But that's the cup before which our Lord fell upon the ground. The thought of the concentrated wrath of heaven descending upon him would lead to his agonizing cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the cup, the prospect of drinking, which caused him to say, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The second question that I want to ask is this. What was the Son of God to do with the cup? This cup, which was an image of the full fury of the wrath of God against the sins of his people, this cup, which was an image of all that we deserved as those who had broken the law of God, which Christ is now prepared to bear as our substitute, what was he to do with this cup? Well, Scripture tells us that he had to drink the cup. Notice the language of verse 42. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. There was a commitment in the holy love of Christ for his people, and yet he knew that in that commitment to their salvation, he had to uphold the righteousness. He had to uphold the justice of the Godhead. He knew that mercy could never justly and righteously flow to sinners unless their sins received their just rewards at the hand of infinite justice. He knew that the cup ought and should pass away with respect to those whose sins filled it. Our Lord says, if it cannot pass away except I drink it, may your will be done. 
and what will be involved in the drinking of that cup? Well, perhaps the best way to answer this is to listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 14, where it uses this same imagery of the cup. And it's used in conjunction again with the wrath of God, only this time the wrath of God being poured out upon the unforgiven, the impenitent in the last days. Revelation 14, verse 9, it says this, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. What was our Lord to do with this cup? He had to drink it. And what does the imagery of drinking the cup mean? It means nothing less than receiving into his own person, into his own soul, into his own body, the full strength, fury of the just and righteous anger of God against the sins of those whom he represents. That's what he had to do with the cup. The Father didn't present the cup to him that Christ might simply point to the cup and say, Father, it is right that there should be a cup of wrath. It is right that there should be a cup of fury against the sins of men and women. I magnify your justice. I magnify your righteousness that there is such a cup. No, no. The cup was presented to Jesus that he might drink it that he might drain its contents by drinking it, that he might exhaust all that it might contain by making it his very own. He had to drink every last drop of it. We've asked the question, what was this cup? Well, it contained the wrath of God against our sin. We've asked the question, what was Christ to do with this cup? He had to drink every last drop of it. The third question is this. Was it right for our Lord to feel this strong dislike to drink the cup? Not once do we find our Lord praying, let this cup pass from me. Not twice, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. But three times in the garden, there were three periods of intense pleading with God the Father that there might be some way to avoid the drinking of the cup. And the question is, was it right for our Lord to feel this way? And the answer is this. Not only was it right, but it would have been the grossest form of impiety and hardness of heart to have looked into that cup with anything other than the level of revulsion with which our Lord looked into that cup. For the Lord Jesus to behold in that cup the unleashed fury of the Godhead against human sin and seeing all that fury rolling towards him and to take it in a stride, to take him with no repulsion would have been the same kind of impiety that the unforgiven sinner often manifests. 
when the sinner hears of the coming tidal wave of the wrath of God and does not even feel a twitch of dread in his soul. It's the height of frightening impiety, not to tremble at the thought of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty. So when our Lord Jesus in the reality of his own humanity, viewed that cup, when that cup was actually placed before him and there was a new and intensified awareness of what it would mean to meet without any alleviation the full fury of the wrath of his Father against the sin of those for whom he stood as substitute, he shrunk back and he said, my Father, if there's any other way, let it be. This was godly fear godly fear. This was not cowardly fear. This was not the fear of carnal cowardice because the subsequent history shows our Lord subjecting himself to this full fury upon the cross. It was right for him to feel this aversion for there was no voice out of heaven rebuking him but rather we're told in Luke's account that there was an angel sent from heaven to strengthen him. Our Lord's active choice of the will of his Father prevailed. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is all about submission. It describes how the Savior consciously, deliberately submitted himself to all of the horrors of the cross. And it gives us some insight into what that entailed. Despite the agony he felt, Despite the sense of unbearable dread that tormented his mind, he consciously, rationally surrendered his human will to the will of God the Father. And he was prepared to drink of that cup. He was prepared to drain it to its last dark drop. And having settled the issue in the wrestlings of Gethsemane from that moment onwards as he goes off to trial and then to Golgotha and into those three mysterious hours of darkness on the cross, it was then that the cup was not merely held before his eyes, but it was put to his lips. And the Father began to tilt the cup and the Son of God drank the first bitter drops and he drank and he drank, and he drank, and he drank until the third hour when his holy soul had drunk to the full and he burst out with a cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And soon afterwards, the dark heavens parted. And I like to think of the first rays of the sun breaking through to shine upon the face of the Son of God and he cries out in victory, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And do you know what the Father did with the cup? He took the cup. He looked into it. He saw that it was drained dry. And he threw it down and he dashed it into pieces at the foot of the cross of his son. The cup was emptied. It now was impossible for one drop of the wrath of God ever, ever to be collected against one of those for whom the Son of God drank it to its last dark drop. 
the prophet Nahum asked the question, who can withstand God's indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? And the answer to that question was the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he alone could withstand his Father's indignation. He only could bear the curse of sin. He only could endure all the avenging wrath. He only could suffer his heel to be bruised by Satan, and yet in that bruising destroy him that had the power of death. In Jesus, we see that boundless love. We see that inflexible justice. We see that omnipotent power all combined to make possible the salvation of all those who believe. And so having taken a glimpse at Gethsemane, having asked the question, what was the cup? It was the wrath of God for the sins of all who would believe. What was he to do with the cup? He was to drink it dry. Now let me apply this passage. Let me apply it first of all to the unbeliever and then to the Christian. To the unbeliever. If the sinless Son of God trembled when he faced the cup of his Father's wrath, what will you do when that cup is put to your lips and you are forced to drink it? against your will. And if you die unforgiven, if you die unrepentant, you will drink it. Because Scripture says that when the Father sets his hour of judgment, when the Father comes again to give to the wicked their due reward, the unforgiven sinners shall, what did Revelation 14 say? He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will Eternal separation from God, who is the fount of all goodness, who is the source of all blessing, awaits the unforgiven. Banishment from God's presence and eternal exile from God is what awaits the lost. And yet again this morning, the Savior has been set before you. You've been told of the Savior who was dealing with real sin. And you up to now, you have despised the offer of mercy that has come from that empty cup. That cup that is saying to you again this morning, Christ is sufficient. Christ is willing. Christ is an able Savior for all who will believe. And at this moment you're saying, no, I will not have him as the one who drank the cup for the likes of me. I will not turn from my sin. I will not turn away from the things that filled that cup. I will continue to drink in the sins of my own self-will and pride and envy and lust and all that makes me what I am as a sinner. Oh, my friend, if God did not spur the substitute, if God did not spur his only son, what makes you think that he will spur you? If he spur not his own son, even though the cry of his son pierced his ear, my father, if it be possible, let the cup pass. And the father's answer was silent but real. He held the cup up to his son's lips, saying, my son, it cannot pass. You must drink it. If you despise, if you treat lightly the Savior offered, who drank that cup, what will the father do in the day of judgment? If you think lightly of your sin, And so this morning, I beg you, I plead with you, 
to flee from the wrath to come, to flee from the cup, which is already filled to the brim with the wrath of God against your sin, and flee in this hour to the Lord Jesus. I plead with you to say to the Lord this morning, Lord Jesus, I run to you. Lord Jesus, you drank the cup for sinners. Lord, I come to you this morning as a sinner, and I would be yours, and I would have you to be mine. And to you, Christian, surely what took place at Gethsemane should produce an intensified conviction with respect to your sins. See in the cross, Jesus, smitten by the sword of divine justice, bruised by his Father, because God did not spare his own Son when he hung in the sinner's place. And our sins have been borne by another. God's claims against us have been fully met, Christ was forsaken of God for a season that we might enjoy his presence forever. Jesus drank the cup of woe that we might drink the cup of joy. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. And though we will never come under legal judgment for our sins, because there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, what took place at Gethsemane, what took place in that garden should produce intensified conviction with respect to our sins. If only the next time you're tempted to entertain a spirit of envy, the next time you're tempted to entertain a lustful thought or to speak a slanderous word or tempted to be unkind and insensitive to your wife or husband, the next time you're tempted to tell an untruth just to see a face, look into the cup which was held at the lips of the Son of God and say, my envy, my lustful thought, my slanderous speech, my insensitivity, my sin, whatever it might be, was in that cup that caused my Savior to sweat great drops of blood. That sin caused him to fall upon his face. That sin wrung from his heart the cry, Oh, my Father, if it be possible. And Christian, if you can sin with those thoughts deliberately brought to mind, you are trampling under the foot the blood of the Son of God. And the next time you're tempted, in whatever way to sin, pray, Lord Jesus, bring that cup before my mind. The next time you're tempted to let gossip into your ear over the phone, as it were, bring the cup between the earpiece and your ear. The next time your lips are tempted to speak cutting or catty or in Christ-like words, bring the cup between your lips and those words. Surely what happened to Gethsemane should be one of the most powerful deterrents to sin. But Gethsemane not only speaks a word of conviction to the believer, but also a word of consolation. In the words of a hymn, the believer can say, death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. Christian, think of that cup, lying shattered as it were, at the foot of the cross. And God will never, never pick it up again 
and put it together. The cup for the believer is forever broken. And what a blessed thing to think of, that the only cup that could hold the wrath of God for my sins was diced to pieces at the base of the cross, never to be reconstructed, never, never, never to be reconstructed. You and I, believer, are to rejoice in the full and free pardon of all of our sin. And then finally, child of God, surely Gethsemane contains not just a word of conviction, not just a word of consolation, but also a word of instruction. We see at Gethsemane the obedience of our Lord to the will of his Father. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And one of the great curses of our generation is that so few learn this principle of obedience. We're so often unwilling to follow any course in which we will trample underfoot all of our inclinations, all of our desires. Through our Lord's obedience to his Father, he procured our salvation. And my Bible says, he that abides in him ought to walk even as he walked. Let's learn from Gethsemane the life to which you and I are called, a life of obedience. And that's the word of instruction. Christian, I'm sure, like myself, I belong to Hamilton Road. And over the Easter period, we had a time of communion in the presence of our Lord. What a privilege it was to come to the table on that occasion and to hold in our hands the cup, representing Christ's shed blood. And as we did so, none of us trembled with dread and fear. Because that cup of communion is a cup of blessing that tells us that because Christ Jesus drank his cup of the wrath of God for us, we may drink that cup. Every time we sit at the table, we may drink that cup with joy unspeakable and full of glory and with great gratitude. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for leaving us the record of your son's anguish in Gethsemane. May what we have heard this morning inflame our love for him and increase our determination to live a life of obedience. And our Father, be pleased to bring some in repentance and faith today that they may not drink that cup of your wrath and fury that awaits every unforgiven sinner. Oh Lord, seal your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.